0: hello there josiah here one of the defining characteristics of my experience recently has been the opportunity to meet a lot of people that inspire me and that have experience uh, that i don't have and this conversation is certainly no different i had an opportunity to sit down with mark lewis who is the president and ceo of the poise foundation the poise foundation is a black community foundation here in pittsburgh and we had a wide range of conversation that touched on a number uh, of topics we talked about uh, the history of the poise Foundation, the philanthropic landscape here uh, in pittsburgh and uh, and how it sits uh, nationally, we talked about the idea of the of the family unit and its importance uh, ways that folks can be philanthropic uh, in their own in their own lives and how they can support uh, principles um, that matter. Um, we talked about the nature of success we talked about my brother 's keeper and i 'm hoping that we can keep this conversation going because of folks. Uh, if people like Mark and I that uh, are in different generations can sit down and listen to each other and uh, exchange wisdom, then there's not uh, much that we won't be able to accomplish. So uh, thanks to Mark for, for sitting down. And without further ado, uh, a conversation with Mark Lewis. All righty. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. About yourself? Good, man. Happy Tuesday to you. You as well. Thanks for taking the time uh, to do this. So we've been getting to know each other um, a little bit better over the past couple months. I'm excited to have this chance to sit down and, and talk with you. Sure. Uh, I thought we could start with um, your own personal journey, um, but before we get there, um, tell us about the Poise Foundation and, and a little bit of its history for context. Sure. So, the Poise Foundation is a black community
1: foundation. Uh, we've been around for 38 years, created by my mentor and a man who's like a father to me, Bernard H. Jones. Uh, the whole idea of trying to create a vehicle that um, was accessible to the black community uh, from the view of philanthropy, um, and trying to create a way where we control our own destiny by building economic vehicles that, again, we own, we control, and our community could could determine uh, where best to invest those resources. So the foundation is a community foundation. We uh, are made up of a lot of different funds, uh, some created by the foundation, many created by individuals uh, within Pittsburgh and actually across the country. So we manage about 100 and almost close to 170 different funds right now okay. uh, for various charitable purposes that we invest and then make grants
0: okay so let's start over some basic definitions what is a community foundation
1: right so uh, some people are aware of foundations you have huge private foundations like the uh, Bill, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation yeah um, the Kellogg Foundation the Ford Foundation are uh, large national foundations where individuals of extreme wealth put their money into a vehicle a charitable vehicle that then invests uh, grants in the community in different ways uh, that's pretty much a private foundation or a family foundation. A okay. community foundation is a 501c3 charitable organization, again, where you have many people in the community, uh, across the community, investing resources to build this vehicle that then can channel those resources back into the community where they're needed the most.
0: Okay, uh, and in terms of the landscape of, of black community foundations, where does where Poise sit? So Poise, from my knowledge, um,
1: we were the second foundation, second black community foundation created in the country, what I'm aware of. The first was the 21st Century Foundation, and they are no longer an independent foundation. They're actually, I believe, a fund up underneath another larger organization. Mm -hmm. So that makes POISE the uh, largest and oldest black community foundation in the country. I'm only aware of one other that was started a couple years ago um, in New Haven, Connecticut, and... I'm working with a friend of mine in Birmingham, Alabama to uh, launch a, another. Hmm. So there are various foundations started by uh, uh, black people in the community, but we're the only black community foundation um, you know, of our age and again size that I'm aware of.
0: That's incredible. So can you talk a little bit about the history of of the Poise Foundation itself? Like how did it come into being?
1: Sure. So Bernard Jones, um, who was just a a great person, a great man, uh, again, my mentor uh, since, you know, as long as I can remember. Uh, grew up in the 50s and 60s in uh, Pittsburgh, saw a lot, of the Hill District, it's good times, and saw the demise of the Hill District as well. Mm-hmm. Um, was a giant of a man, but always, you know, cared about youth, first of all, but always had this idea of social entrepreneurship. And even before uh, you know, those kind of terms, social entrepreneur and things like that were um, in vogue, you know, yeah. he was doing it, he okay. was doing the work. And so he created many organizations over the years that led up to Poise Foundation, including Urban Youth Action, hmm. which was a youth organization employed or helped um, uh, black kids in our community uh, across the Pittsburgh area and um, Allegheny County. Get jobs downtown when Pittsburgh was, you know, third largest corporate headquarters. So he probably had 20,000 kids go through the program, a lot of them get internships, uh, went on to do great things. Um, And what was unique about the program other than other kind of youth training programs is that uh, there was a youth staff there. Hmm. So the youth actually ran the program with some adult supervision. Uh, and so that was very unique at its time. And that organization technically still exists, but uh, flourished for at least 45 years. Uh, and again, like I said, over 20,000 kids went through the program. Wow. Uh, with that, he created other organizations that began to tie in economics and eventually led to the Poise Foundation. Poise only started with about $160,000 um, know, on hand, $170,000 in three funds um, for the first, again, with 38 years for the first. Uh, Sixteen years we' were a volunteer organization um, for the next i 'd probably say twelve years we were a one person shop and it's only recently in the last probably eight nine years that we began to build capacity as a you know what I call now a small business uh, and continue to grow so um, if you look at where we focus our funds over the years, uh, probably by default, not so much planned but by request i 'd say about eighty you know percent of the monies went to focus on children and youth type activities Uh, some of that being scholarships and you know education based over the last say five to eight years we really looking at us as a small foundation decided to take a, a deep dive and look at where we could have a big impact in the community and for us that really boiled down to two things one was we have to figure out how to strengthen our families uh, within our community again uh, we're a, a community historically that had f- uh, strong family structure uh, and community and within the community families really helped each other survive and thrive and uh, do what was necessary mm-hmm. so uh, over the last four decades we've seen a, a clear demise of you know just the core structure of family but uh, the responsibilities that families have typically had within our community at the same time, we've seen our, our neighborhoods and community structure break down. So for Poise Foundation, it's really those two things. How do we invest resources, leadership, and some, uh, you know, some thought around how to strengthen our families, and at the same time, how do we begin to drive a more sustainable black community uh, within our region?
0: Uh, let's just stay with the history for a quick second. What was, what was his background that he was so uh, involved. You mentioned there's kind of a, a progress of interests mm-hmm. creating different organizations over time, incorporated economics, and then um, culminating with, um, or at least leading to the creation of the right. Boys Foundation itself. Where w- how was he coming to this work? So Mr.
1: Jones was a, uh, you know, this big giant, he was 6'5", over 250 pounds, played yeah. football in college. Um, big dude. Yeah, he went to Knoxville uh, State, oh. uh, played football there, but his major was social work. Okay. So again, he always had an interest of our community and how do we help our community and and more particularly, how do we help kids? And so what happened was in Urban Youth Action, when he created that program, um, when you looked at the funding streams, he, um, Urban Youth Action became a program of the United Way. Urban Youth Action also was at the time, early in its stages, receiving a lot of uh, grant money from certain foundations. But what he found in being involved uh, both with the foundations of United Way Uh, that because they were the major funders they also determined or would dictate how best to run the program Mm -hmm. and if you can imagine uh, Bernie Jones was focused on inner-city Hill District and inner-city Pittsburgh and uh, individuals that were running the foundations in United Way were not necessarily from those same spaces so it's one thing to help fund and support programs it's another Mm when you do programming a certain way in your community, sure. then you try to impose that exact same process on another community where it doesn't have the same resources, history, culture, whatever, and think that you're going to get the same results. Yeah, it might contribute to different results. Then. <laughs> yeah. So what he did, what that spurred him to do was think about How do we gain control of our own economic destiny? Mm -hmm. And if we control the resources, then we control the programming. We control where investments need to be. And because we're of a community, we know a lot better where to invest those resources than those who are outside the community. So
0: you mentioned that it started with um, $160,000, $170,000 to begin with. Um, How did they or did he go about raising awareness and sure. support, and did he experience any resistance um, beyond just trying to start a new enterprise? <laughs> uh, yeah, I laugh at the resistance
1: piece. Let me start with the, the first question. So uh, what Bernie Jones would do, he was a, you know, just an amazing person at being able to capture and captivate people and express uh, uh, you know, his thinking and thoughts, and his thinking was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, probably decades ahead of where he was at the time. Uh, But basically what they did was, you know, grassroots fundraising. So they held, uh, he would get people around him who became ambassadors for what he was trying to do, and they would hold fundraisers, they would do things in the community to raise money, to raise awareness. Um, You know, he would take kids on trips out of the state to D.C. and different places to, you know, create exposure. Uh, He was just somebody who really and deeply cared about people, and you can see it based on the numbers of people who wanted to be involved in what he was doing. And so through that process and uh, then getting people he knew and others to invest in the foundation and create funds, be it their own charitable funds or funds for you know, various charitable purposes, the foundation began you know, to grow over time. Switching gears to uh, was there any resistance? Um, he shared with me one letter that he received when he created the foundation of, uh, uh, it was a, a white business person. I don't think he ever told me the person's name. But the person basically wrote a letter uh, to him when he started the foundation because we had to publicize that. Yeah. Uh, and the letter basically said, you know, went through a process. It basically said, you know, how dare you people create a foundation? You know, we've taken care of you all this time. We know how to do it better than you do. Right. And we will continue to take care of you. And so, um, you know, that was one situation or one example. There were many others. Uh, I won't mention who he had worked for. Uh, previous to Poise, but uh, there was a situation where one of his former employers uh, basically said, you know, if you give up Poise Foundation, we'll double your salary. Wow. Right. And so I think they knew the importance of, you know, controlling anything. So when you control assets, then you have the ability to uh, determine, you know, your destination in a much better way. And so we're far from uh, being there with Poise Foundation, but at least it's a vehicle that we can build on and uh, it's, it's, you know further along the road than many others um, you know, throughout
0: the country. So let's transition. That's a remarkable story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to imagine what his reaction was receiving a letter like that. Um, what Wasn't good. It <laughs> Wasn't great, no? Well, he wasn't thrilled by that? Okay. Uh, so let's talk about how POISE defines community. Um, and then today, uh, what, like, what does that look like programmatically or in terms of, uh, of funding areas? Sure
1: so that's that 's a very interesting question that we wrestle with all the time so when by definition, when you talk about community foundations you 're usually talking about a geographic a specific geographic place right now that geography could be you know a neighborhood, a city, uh, or anything bigger. Our core geography that we talk about um, when we say community is really allegheny county okay uh, so it 's Pittsburgh and then those surrounding uh, municipalities within the county uh, we do reach out beyond that um, and that's from more of our focus of where we try to invest dollars as well as where we try to uh, support certain types of programs now we get donations from across the country and we have funds that people have started uh, you know, from all over the country as well and within those funds that people have started um, a lot of people that don't live in Pittsburgh have funds that they create in the foundation but those funds support programs in other areas of the country. So just because you start a fund here and we're a community foundation does not mean that all the funding has to be done in Pittsburgh. Right. But the majority of the funding is done in Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh so when you think about so that's kind of our, our when we talk about community, uh and for Poise Foundation, again we are a black community. So when we talk about community we're really talking about the black community within, you know, the Pittsburgh region. Yeah. Um uh, and we believe that, you know, there's not Anything significantly unique about the Pittsburgh region that the things that we talk about and the things we're trying to employ could not be uh, you know done elsewhere in the country so when you talk about core programming again that goes back to you know what impact does the foundation really have or could the foundation really have in our community and so right now our unrestricted grant making is focused on this idea of strengthening black families okay right and Trying to lift the family uh, back up as a core institution within our community and so there are four primary uh, uh, areas of focus uh, within that sh- that strategy so one is our grant making which um, we have a cohort of organizations that we're looking at and helping them to view their work through a family lens and the idea of that work is how do you create how can you assist in creating better interactions within families right so it's not How do you get them more education? It's not how are you uh, providing them clothes. It's how do we get family units, right, to become stronger by having more positive interactions with each other. A good example of why that was necessary, um, there was a man in a family um, kind of resource um, center, and one of our program people were talking with him, and he said, you know what? I want to play logos with my child. I don't want another nonprofit or an after-school program to be doing that with my child. Hmm. You know, I want to do that. I want that interaction. Yeah. But what we've done in our communities, you know, we're creating more and more nonprofits, and those nonprofits are, um, you know, I think it's unintentional, but what I see happening is those nonprofits are basically um, the responsibilities of families are being outsourced. Various types of nonprofits, mm-hmm. and so families are taking less and less responsibility. There's many reasons, you know, for that. We can argue back and forth as to why that happens. Uh, but the issues I see is one, it's not sustainable. Two, there's no way that any nonprofit can give the attention to a child like a family can, be it its parents, extended family, or whomever. Um, so this whole idea of building up strong families through allowing them to experience and Uh, adopt and uh, make habit again this idea of strong you know family interactions is critical real quick just the other aspects of the strategy Um, there's a uh, piece of the strategy that's focused on uh, trying to create positive imagery within our community okay in other words we don't see strong families you know in the Pittsburgh area 23 percent of our uh, families with children are headed by single females Hmm. right now that doesn't mean that the male you know, fathers aren't involved or males aren't involved, but that's the visual, that's one of the statistics we see. And typically that's the visual you see, right? On like,
0: in like media? In media, even if you're just
1: walking in a community a lot of times. Okay, so so like
0: the lived experience of folks, you're not seeing the vibrant sense of We don't see it, right? That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, right? It's like a dominant dominant template that you're seeing. Exactly, so
1: one thing we want to do is lift up that view because for children, for anybody in our society, you learn the most through modeling. Right? So what you see modeled is you know, what kind of gets in your psyche, that's what you see, that's what you believe, that's what you adapt to. And so um, our idea or thought is how do we show the modeling of strong families? And we don't define you know, what a family looks like, uh, but you know, there is strength in families. And um, the narrative in our community is that you know, there is nothing of strength. There are no assets, right? And so our view is, let's show those assets. Mm -hmm. There's also a policy piece and then um, a piece around changing the the mindset of those in the field of philanthropy and nonprofits. In other words, how do we get others to start thinking about this view of investing their assets uh, from a family lens, not just how do we help these kids or this parent or whatever.
0: Uh, That's interesting. So um, let's talk about some more of the general landscape then, because you mentioned the uh, preponderance of uh, certainly the frequency of nonprofits uh, or just the, the total number. And that's something that I've been familiar with uh, coming mm-hmm. up the way that I have in the nonprofit space in Pittsburgh. Um, talk about where poise just let's just talk about like, the, the philanthropic landscape mm-hmm. um, because like you mentioned, a lot of these are funded by uh, other foundations. Um, what, what do you see, how would you describe that to someone who's not familiar? Yeah.
1: So Pittsburgh is, uh, is very interesting and unique. Um, we are you know even today with some of the uh, Facebooks and Microsoft and these huge companies that have developed extreme wealth yeah. uh, and have allowed some of their owners to create large foundations. Pittsburgh is still probably the sixth largest uh, philanthropic community in the country uh, per capita based on you know the number of people we have here. Uh, and the number of, and types of foundations we have here. Mm -hmm. So there is extreme foundational wealth within the Pittsburgh uh, community. Um, I think that is good on one hand, it's extremely bad on the other, because what we also see is that um, for most nonprofits, most of their funding comes from the foundation community, not from individuals, right? Right. If you look at the, the landscape in the country from a philanthropic view, most charitable, over eighty percent of all charitable deductions come. I mean, charitable gifts come from individuals, wow. but that's kind of you know not the case here in Pittsburgh, just because we have such a huge foundation uh, community. Right. So um, right. you know, with all that money comes the ability to produce or support a lot of nonprofits. Right. Um, Unfortunately, there's still not enough money in our community to support all the nonprofits that we have. So one, I think that nonprofit structure, and if it's a growing nonprofit structure, is not really sustainable, mm-hmm. right? Two, it goes back to the point of is it better to have a family become sustainable and be able to take care of itself, or is the scenario these days to create nonprofits out there to do a lot of what families, you know, had typically done in the past, right? And, again, I'm not arguing or, you know, saying there aren't reasons why certain things happen, but, again, it's not sustainable, mm. right? And I would argue that, you know, 99 times out of 100, a family cares more about the family members than any, you know, individual nonprofit can, regardless of how well-intentioned or well-meaning they are.
0: Right? Yeah, uh, so here's an easy question: How do you support the sustainability of a family unit? <laughs> yeah.
1: Now that's tough, yeah. And I think it's extremely hard, yeah. and I think that's why uh, most foundations and most nonprofits don't even want to talk family mm-hmm. because it, it's hard, it's messy. How do you define it? There's all these different types of relationships, right. um, you know. But at the end of the day, um, I think it for me it comes down to basic common sense, right? And so at the end of the day, I think we um, We tend to make life so complicated with all the different systems we have, right? When we wake up in the morning, right, we wake up, we get dressed. Hopefully we get something to eat, right? We go to school or we go to work. We interact with other people, right? There's a health piece in there. So, you know, there's basic things that we do on a daily basis. Now, in the system, if you look at, you know, The system as a whole, the system is extremely complex. And what we do is we keep adding complexity to it, right? So we, and then we sector off things. So we'll talk about affordable housing. We'll talk about jobs, we'll talk about education. Then we make those, these huge systems. And the problem with systems is they become so large that you really can't manage it. But when you break it down back to a family, it's, you know, to me, it gets, again, very simple, right? There's all these little basic things that make up, you know, that support and provide a family what it needs. So when you're talking about affordable housing, which I won't dispute that, you know, there's a need for that, but at the same time, affordable housing is not
0: a solution. Not a solution to, right, to sustainability, certainly. Right.
1: The solution is how do you help a family be able to afford the housing they need? Yeah. Right. I see what you mean. Yep. But we'll focus on affordable housing and say, you know, we have to get all this affordable housing because people obviously need housing, Right. But again, we'll do that forever and never solve or get to the point of trying to solve the problem. And so I think, um, you know, when you start talking about how do we get families to become sustainable again, that is extremely hard because now you're trying to talk, you know, you're, you're bringing into the conversation, changing the system right. and trying to change the system to, to a point where it supports families, not, I mean, it supports families in their growth to become sustainable. Not just supporting families so they don't fall off the table and, you know, to provide a floor so, you know, they're not so bad off that there's no recovery, right? And, and I think that's necessary, but at the same time, where are those institutions or systems that are saying, yes, we can do that, we can stabilize, but how do we build this family up so it can take care of itself? Right. Right.
0: So that's, that's my next question. How, how can poise or um, uh, a philanthropic entity, um, how can... In the In the context of some of this larger systemic change, mm-hmm. how can they encourage some of those um, basic components of a healthy, thriving, sustainable family unit mm-hmm. and um, and how are your resources kind of tailored towards that right
1: so and again that 's very tough I mean, yeah. we're a very tiny foundation in you know, in, in the scheme of things uh, and so i 'll start by saying it 's not. And this will be hard for some people to understand, but it's really not a money issue. Hmm. So if you think about in the Pittsburgh region, we have uh, foundation dollars uh, every year, somewhere between 350 and $400 million invested in our community. Uh, if you add on to DHS, Department of Human Services, hmm. and close to another billion dollars every year. Wow. So you would think with those type of investments, we would see some substantial change taking place in the lives of you know, a lot of people. But you, you don't see that. Right, and so I think it's a, it, you know, it really starts from a community perspective. Do we, as a community, really want to invest in those who need it the most? Right, and not invest this year. and think there's going to be a change next year. Mm-hmm. We're talking investing ten, twenty, thirty, forty years to see some substantial change over that time frame. If I look at uh, just to throw out a stat, I'm a stat guy. Yeah. If I look at the 1960s, where a black households in this country. Uh, 70% were two-parent households, right? And if we look today, on average in this country, we're down about 23%. Wow. Right. That's, that took a four-year, I mean, a 40-year, you know. Slide. Time frame to get yeah. there, right? At the same time, what's interesting is the number of nonprofits escalated tremendously during that same time frame, right? So just keep that in mind. So, you know, it took us a while to get to where we are family structure-wise. It's gonna take us a while if we put the right investments in, you know, to reverse that trend, right? right. Um, I think we also need to think about uh, another statistic in the Pittsburgh region. Black income in Pittsburgh is approaching $4 billion a year, yet we probably spend about 97% of that outside of our community, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we were able to take a portion of that income that is ours, that we determine where it goes, and intentionally reinvest that back into our community, what type of change would that have? You know, would that make what type of, of businesses in our community could that support? Right. If those businesses were supporting the right way, what type of jobs, excuse me, and, and um, you know, sustainable jobs could that create?
0: Yeah.
1: Right. right. So what dent, you know, could that make on poverty? If we, I like the number 5%, 5% of that is $200 million a year. Wow. Right. How many jobs, how many corporate, you know, how many companies, how many businesses could we support with $200 million a
0: year? And that's that's significant even compared to the uh to the total philanthropic activity on a yearly exactly. basis as well exactly yeah, so is that just you know encouraging folks to support local businesses community uh entities stuff like that um participate in in social activities and clubs uh um, kind of uh um like local institutions churches what have you
1: or I think it's um it would take a a comprehensive plan right, so I don't look at this as a buy black marketing campaign, uh, I look at this as... Because I
0: hear that. I hear that a lot. You right,
1: know? right. And so I think those, which you mentioned, those are important pieces. Right. But it would be dangerous to think that just because we say, let's do these things, that it automatically happens that way. I think there's education that needs to happen throughout our, our community, being on the consumer side, being on the, the business side. Um, potential employee side as well as investor side. Mm. So there needs to be a comprehensive plan. And, and although I'm not one, you know, I like things to be authentic uh, because we have been uh, submerged into this system that we currently exist in, we need a good, strong plan to get us out of it, mm. right? And that plan doesn't have to be complex or complicated. And most of it is really based on our will. Mm. So we have the will to, I mean, excuse me, we have the resources, ah. right, to, really change the trajectory of where the black community resides uh, as far as on the scale of of, uh, disparities, be it health, be it education, be it employment, be it wealth. We have the resources, right, to really change our trajectory uh, with the right type of planning. Mm -hmm. What I want to find out is do we have the will to do it, right, and sometimes to develop that will is going to require some sacrifice you know on a lot of different paths, and we're not talking about big sacrifice, but just you know small sacrifices from you know a lot of sectors within our community uh that and maybe sacrifice isn't even the right way uh, right word, it's really investment because at the end of the day, you know that type of investment could reap huge benefits going forward, yeah so
0: what what is something that you wish more people knew about the Poise Foundation um, and like your current work now? Yeah.
1: So Poise, the, the unique um, benefit of Poise Foundation is we are a vehicle that really allows, especially from the African American community, um, the majority of households or families um, to be philanthropic, right? Hmm. And to be philanthropic in a strategic way. Hmm. So most of us in the mail will get, you know, this is not to knock any uh, particular nonprofits, but uh, easy one for me to remember is in the mail, you'll get a letter saying, you know, where the March of Dimes support us, send your $25 or $50. And we'll do that. Maybe we know someone that is suffering from, you know, a certain illness or disease and we support it. Uh, But we have no idea, you know, where the money goes. And I don't mean it's being used wrong way. We just have no idea how it's being invested, right? Uh, Nor do we have any type of control over that. Um, nor do we know how it impacts directly our community, right. But a Poise Foundation uh, is a vehicle that, you know, our goal would be to get, if there are 45,000 black families in the Pittsburgh region. And are there? Uh, yes. Roughly speaking? Roughly speaking. Uh, there's about a, close to 200,000 black people in Allegheny County alone, okay. yep. uh, and that breaks down to you know, somewhere around 45,000 families, okay. right? Okay. what would it look like if we were able to get 45,000 families at a minimum to contribute $100 a year into Poise Foundation right, to support the efforts of what we've been speaking about trying to lift up the black family again as a uh, critical core institution in our community and trying to help uh, reestablish a uh, strong black community within the Pittsburgh region. And when I say a strong black community, I'm not necessarily just talking about Um, you know a black neighborhood we are spread out you know within our region all over the place which is why people say there's not a black middle class here there's not strong whatever which is not true it's just that we are so spread out that we almost seem like we're invisible
0: and the majority uh, of folks of black folks live outside of the city limits is that that's that's correct. correct yeah
1: that's correct there's more people living black people living outside the city than in Uh, That was from 2010, you know, to the date that was the first time in in decades that that's taken place. But the sense of community is, you know, from a logical perspective, right? Just because we don't all live in the same neighborhoods does not mean that we can't come together, you know, to grab hold of a strong plan that's going to lift us up as a community, which is going to, you know, create more opportunities, be it work opportunities, be it educational opportunities, be it cultural opportunities. Right, so yeah. we can do that logically without having to all move back into the hill or Homewood. Doesn't mean that we can't support those different areas. And I'm not saying that we don't need a strong black community, be it business or, or neighborhood. But you know, realistically, that's not going to happen overnight. So we can still do that from a logical pers- perspective. Come together as a black community and invest in us in a way that could create you know strong results.
0: How would one come about this plan? You know, how would you? develop and then articulate uh that
1: sure so that's something that uh you know we have been working on for you know quite a while now actually so the first view from my perspective was you know if you're trying to develop a more sustainable black community then we need to develop a vision for what that looks like and so about five six years ago we actually went out into the community um we were in eight neighborhoods. We also interviewed or had sessions with about five different constituency groups, including uh, some senior citizens, uh, women from a halfway house, some college students some black professionals. I think we even had some high school students in there. And the whole idea within the eight neighborhoods we went to and then these groups was, what is the vision for a sustainable black community? And we were able to come up with you know an actual vision statement mm-hmm. for that. So the vision is there. Now the question is how do we develop Um, the right action steps to begin to help us reach that vision yes one of the line items out of that vision was um, to reinvest in us culturally spiritually and economically right that's just one is about four lines of the vision that was one of the lines and that line kind of stuck out at me Mm -hmm. and one thing that I recognize in there is that if we don't reinvest in us economically it's very hard to do all the other things Mm -hmm. right So what Poise Foundation is looking at right now is how do we, you know, develop a strategy and plan to reinvest in us, right, economically. And so I've talked to over 50 people uh, with some ideas who, you know, have given me some great feedback and uh, I would say uh, I think all have supported some of the thinking of where we're going. Uh, The next step will be to get into a room and start to strategize. Right, and pull some things together. And one thing that I'm um, extremely adamant about, and I won't, you know, talk about anybody else, um, is the idea of making sure that you know the people you're trying to help most are in the room. Mm. Right. I think so often we get to a place where we uh, come up with solutions for people, but never have their voice in the room. Mm. Right. So for me, it's it's a um, it's a wide spectrum of individuals in the room, um, and my first steps always are to, if we're trying to execute a plan or develop a plan, let's try to figure out what all the barriers are to success, right? Let's do that right up front. Begin to come up with solutions or knock down those barriers even before we you know, start. Yeah. So when we get to a barrier, there's already plans to get around it, go over it, or knock it down, right? But you won't be halted just because something comes your way that, uh, you know, doesn't agree or is trying to interfere with the overall plans.
0: Yeah, so, and this may be uh, a a needless parsing of words, but is the idea to recreate or reinvest in um, or reinvigorate the notion of a sustainable family, healthy family, or to create something new? Uh, Because you mentioned this slide, this precipitous slide over the past Mm -hmm. several decades. Uh, it sounds like to me that you're dealing with uh, out of this forty five ish families uh, a lot of new entities mm-hmm. that maybe were not in existence back then or at least several of them so is there a distinction uh there to be made is it uh or is it just kind of like you're harkening back to a time when things were were different
1: yeah so that, that's a great question and there, you know there could be debate about that all over the place uh i don't know if there's really anything new or different. I think uh, what you have is the acceptance of, of various types of families where before they may have existed, weren't accepted, so they weren't viewed, right? Uh, right. And so I always say there's nothing really new under the sun. Uh, sure. So, again, at POISE, we are not trying to define what family looks like. Uh, but within a family unit, right, um, there are still certain relationships. There are still certain values. There are still certain um, um, you know, things that we should be teaching our kids, right? So they grow up to be productive adults when they reach 18 or 21 or whatever. And right now I see us, you know, whatever that looks like, I see us um, too often pushing that out to nonprofits to, uh, you know, not necessarily, I don't think we so much push out the idea that we want nonprofits to teach our kids values, right? Or the school system necessarily teach our kids values. But if you think about it, if we're spending less and less time and less and less interaction with our children, and we're not, you know, instilling those values in them based on how we act, what we do, how we we relate, then we allow others to fill that void, right? So again, you know, part of it is how do you begin to create more and more opportunities and lift up as a standard the need for extreme positive interactions within our family units,
0: yeah.
1: right? so that we can develop those strong relationships right because again in my opinion no one's going to care about your family more than you or that family itself right, right. And, the, and the question becomes how do we help support the creations of families that can take care of themselves now that's not an isolation you know everything is community and we all interact and need to be uh, interacting community but again with family we're not just talking about who's in that household we're talking extended family Sometimes that family might be the neighbors across the street. Right. Right. So, again, it's not necessarily defining what family looks like, but the functioning of family, um, you know, and what family provided back, you know, 20, 40, 50 years ago, as well as a community. If you had a family that struggled, you know, a long time ago, you would have a community system or neighborhood system around them that really picked them up. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it is more so the government or its nonprofits. Right. Yeah and nothing wrong, per se, with the nonprofit uh, model. The problem is, again, it's not sustainable. There's not enough money, and so we have all these nonprofits competing for the same dollars, which means, yes, they have desire to provide a great service without having all the resources.
0: Yeah, do you think with some of the tools at our disposal uh, and the ability, I'm thinking specifically, to communicate um, that we have today, that it might be an easier time uh, to have this conversation than in the past?
1: Um I wouldn't say it's easier. I think there are too many forces that um, have now lifted up the nonprofit structure as a industry.
0: Industry
1: yeah, right? And once you make something in the industry, then your metrics are different. <laughs> now it's, you know, what is the revenue of that industry? Yeah. How many people does that industry employ? Yeah. Right? How many assets does that industry control? Versus, especially on the nonprofit side, when your mission Right, is really to focus on community. Right, I always remember one statement that came up when we were doing our research around our family work, and there was a nonprofit executive director of a nonprofit who made a statement that basically said, "I spend so much of my time trying to make sure that our doors stay open, that my employees are paid, that we don't have time to focus on our mission."
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Now you're in business, especially as a nonprofit, to focus on that mission but you are operating such at a business level that you don't even have time to focus on the mission, right? And so that, you know, so when you say, is it easier? I don't think it's easy at all. I think we've got to really change, um, uh, you know, the thinking and the will to focus on families and lift families up. The other issue, and I'm sure, uh, I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but, um, you know, in so many respects, Poverty in this country is a neces you know a necessity to the system, right? There's a lot of money made off of poverty in this mm. country, mm. and so you know, is there a will from power to really change that? Yeah, that's a question that needs to be answered.
0: That's a that's a real question. Okay, so let's talk about MBK. Sure. Um, My Brothers Keeper, Pittsburgh and Allegheny County. Uh, the idea is to take uh, the framework in the six goal areas and see what can be done to. Uh, to further the work uh, throughout the city and the county, mm-hmm. so there's overlap there. Uh, it, for this new phase of My Brother's Keeper work here, uh, Poise has now been engaged as the fiduciary agent, mm-hmm. and that's that's the preferred nomenclature, right? Yeah.
1: Uh, the fiscal sponsor for fiscal the fiscal sponsor. Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. All right. And um, and that's and that's all very very exciting. Uh, but given given your understanding of of the history. Uh, of initiatives that uh, that have been created before uh, in the current land- landscape now. Uh, tell me, just give me some of your thoughts about, about My Brother's Keeper and the role that it can play um, given your own mission and, and, and vision. Sure, sure.
1: So, I mean, it, you know, so there's a couple things. One, you say, or you talk about initiatives that have been created, you know, over the years. Um, I think it's, um, It's always dangerous if we think that this new initiative is going to be the thing, you know, that saves everything else that we've been trying to do, or this is the next, you know, uh, item out there that is just going to bring all the answers, right? So I think um, whatever we do, we still need to think in the context of community. Grounded in um, the sense of community. Grounded in the sense of community, and really grounded in the sense of family, Mm -hmm. right? where does my brother's keeper come from, mm.
0: right? Mm-hmm.
1: If you think, if you trace that all the way back, it's it's a biblical reference to a family. That's right. Right? That's right. Not a neighborhood, a family. Yeah. A blood brother That's who right. basically said, am I responsible for my brother? Right. 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 And so you can extrapolate that out to me now, um, you know, community members and neighbors and everybody else. Are we responsible? Um, and I think, you know, the answer to that should be we, you know, whether we're responsible or not, we should have concern and care, right, for everyone in our community. And so that's a whole different conversation. Um, But at the same time, you know, and and how that relates back to the family, we need to make sure that as we're talking about My Brother's Keeper, and I know uh, there's been iterations of uh, the initiative since it's been developed to also include, you know, girls, so it's focused on men and women, I mean, uh, young boys and, Men of color, and then... Yeah, strong initial focus there in the wake of
0: the Trayvon Martin murder. Right, right.
1: Right. But there's always been that conversation, you know, do we leave the girls out? And so there's always, you know, trying to bring that back into focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the end of the day, we need to look at my brother's keeper in the context of family, right? So what does it mean when we're trying to bring all these organizations together uh, to help, you know, men and boys? Let's just focus there for a second, right? Yeah. Uh, Men and boys, you know, in the context of what? men and boys are still part of families, right? And the strength of, if I have a, an initiative or organization and creates this strong, well-powered male, right, to become 21, 22, 25, and now is very productive, but I teach that person nothing about relationships, how to relate, right, to people close to them, how to relate in society, how to do whatever, right, then I'm still missing the boat. All I've done is created this strong individual Right, but just because it's a strong individual does not mean that they're going to be an asset to the community. Right, different kinds
0: right. of productivity,
1: different types of productivity. Yeah. So we always need to do whatever we're doing, and for us at Poise, it's always coming back down to that family piece, right? So what does this work mean in the in you know uh, in the context of family? Are we creating just strong males? Are we trying to create strong males to be strong leaders within their family, right? And again, the reason why we keep breaking it down to the family because that's a simple that is the foundation and building block of community. If I look at various you know, communities, be it weak or strong, I can say if, if someone, however you want to define it, says that's a strong community, I can almost guarantee you that there are some very, there's a high level or high number of strong families within that community. And what I mean by that is families who are uh, sustaining themselves, right, who have resources, who, um, yes, depend on everything like everybody else, but, Um, you know, have the power to make decisions and have been strong models for the next generation coming up, right? So um, the My My Brother's Keeper initiative, I think could be a very good initiative. I think it also needs to be viewed in the context of what else is happening in the community, right? What can we connect to? Make sure we're having conversations with other initiatives and other things that are going on because again, there is no solution in isolation, right? And that's going to be, you know, the key. How do the six core goals align with other things that are happening? So I understand um, how we have, you know, at least in Pittsburgh, we're trying to marry My Brother's Keeper with uh, the initiative with uh, the city and county, and making sure that you know if those six goals interact with other goals, then that provides stronger resources and maybe some connective tissue. We need to make sure that we don't lose you know, the, uh, the core and the soul of My Brother's Keeper as it attaches to the larger systems, Yeah. right? That's always a risk.
0: It's always a risk, and it, and it brings up a, a, a question that I've been wrestling with since starting uh, this work in 2016, mm-hmm. which is that um, I've, I've, it's been great to have uh, the regional playbook. It was one of the first MBK-related documents that a city or county or a governmental entity uh, produced. Mm-hmm in the context of uh, the, the national challenge that the Obama administration gave. Uh, and within it, there were all these specific objectives within the six goal areas, everything from early childhood through post-secondary matriculation, community police relations, uh, public safety, um, career tracks as viable options, etc. The de- developmental continuum, basically, and then uh, where and how this is happening in the, mm-hmm. in the context of community. But a question I've been asking myself is, and it comes back to the original premise to that scriptural reference, which is, uh, the question is, am I my brother's keeper? If the answer is no, then I feel like the conversation ends mm-hmm. ends there. It's like, oh, okay, well, right. okay, well, right. then no, okay, so <laughs> you right. have no responsibility. If the answer is yes, mm-hmm. and uh, the implication of uh, of the of it being titled the initiative being titled My Brother's Keeper is that we're saying yes to a certain mm-hmm. extent. What then does being a keeper mean? Sure. And if you're going to start with an initial strong focus on African American men and boys, for example, what does it mean to be their keeper? And then what does it mean to be a young man or boy of color Mm -hmm. and keep others? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a fundamental underpinning question because looking at the specific objectives on on how we're tracking with uh, early childhood immunizations, for example, is a a key pivotal objective for Mm -hmm. long-term health and trajectories. Uh, But when you're talking about how we should then behave with one another, how we should then pursue a, a sense of community Starting with ourselves, first mm-hmm. and foremost, keeping ourselves, uh, but then those that are close to us in a broader sense of community, I think that's really where the conversation has the potential to introduce sure. uh, principles, examples, models that can allow folks to go on their own journey uh, because you mentioned you mentioned the the uh, this idea of kind of uh, in some cases outsourcing what would have maybe even family time to nonprofits or out of school time uh, programs or whatever the case may be, for whatever reasons there may be um, and how that can have interesting effects one way uh, or another, but I think what's interesting to consider is what kind of learning are you perhaps losing out on mm-hmm. uh, given that given that setup sure. and if you were going to say Uh, Define, or maybe not define, but model or encourage the idea of a of a coherent family unit. How would you introduce those ideas? Mm -hmm. It might not be on a whiteboard, right? Right, right. or in a curriculum. Yeah, I think again, it's
1: you know, so for learning, for me, yes, you can learn in the classroom. You can learn in various ways. You can learn online, all over the place these days. But for me, the number one way is modeling. Mm. Right. We again remember what we see. Right, we develop habits based on what is modeled to us on a day-to-day basis, in and out, in and out. Yeah. Whether that modeling is good or whether that modeling is bad, you know, there was the old saying, right? An apple doesn't far fall far from the tree. Yeah, what that means is the tree is set in its ways, right? And when that apple falls, it's going to be right near the tree. So there was a study that was done. I was listening to NPR once, and they mentioned the fact that. Uh, When adults grow up, right, over 90% of adults, when they grow up, they adopt the same values and standards and you name it that their family, you know, that their family exhibited as they were growing up, right? The reason that's not, you know, you say, wow, really? Well, I mean, it makes total sense. I spend more time with my family. Yeah, the function of time. Right? Right. Than anybody else. Also as human beings we have a strong desire to belong Mm -hmm. so it's not just that I spend more time with my family I also belong to that family right so whether I have mentors or whatever when I go back to that family that family usually has the strongest influence on me because that's where I belong right and so because I belong there and because I spend time there you know that's the modeling that I see the most and those are the intimate conversations that we hear, right? And those are the things we see behind closed doors. Yeah. When, you know, all of the um, things, the airs we put on outside go away. Our kids see us model different things. And if there's two parents, they'll see a relationship, mm-hmm. right? Good or bad. Yeah. But they're seeing a relationship model, right? And so that modeling to us is probably one of the strongest ways that our kids will, um, you know, as they mature, that will be the indicator of, you know, how they mature is what is in their atmosphere and what are they seeing, right? Right. And again, that's why one of the core tenets of the Strength of Black Families work has always been, and we haven't really executed on this yet, uh, for various resources. So the more resources we can get poured into to Poise Foundation, the more we can do this. But it's that whole idea of how do we lift up strong models,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because, it, it, you know, it's a shame in our community when So many of our kids, you know, you ask them what they want to do when they grow up, sports, celebrities, or rappers, right? And it's not a surprise because what do they see being lifted up and glorified, you know, in our community? They don't see too many doctors, they don't see too many dentists, they don't see professionals, they don't see plumbers, electricians, you know, on a daily basis. What they see is, you know, what's lifted up. So that becomes their aspiration. Where back when we were a strong community and had to live together you could be poor but across the street was a doctor
0: mm.
1: down the street was someone who worked in the mill. you know but these were people making good livings yeah. right and so you saw that you were exposed to that mm. and so your dreams could be yeah, i can be you know like mr sims or mr peter's or whoever it was mm. mr smith down the street because i see them and that's the modeling i see all the time yeah we have lost that um pretty much in our community because the professionals and middle class that we do have, again, are so spread out and segregated in various communities that they're not really seen, right? And the ones, uh, the people who tend to be left in our communities, aren't seeing those in the uh, black communities, especially in Pittsburgh, aren't seeing those type of professionals, you know, on a daily basis.
0: Right. Yeah, it reminds me of my experience working in Homewood for for the past two and a half years or so, and this idea of uh, what are the kids, we're education folks. What are the kids mm-hmm. being exposed to? And it it's occurred to me that it could very well be the case that there are twice the number of black doctors in the region mm-hmm. um, as when we started this program. But if they're not in the community, exactly, um, how it's a, it's not a, a model or template that will register. And someone said to me that um, I think it's an adage, and to to a certain extent, that youth may not listen to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're if you're going to be uh, patterning yourself off of what you see. That's right. How do you how do you expand the exposure so that there's other options that may uh, may occur. Right. Uh, and then there's the, the final thing. Another scriptural reference where it said, "My people perish for lack of knowledge," um, and there was an article I was reading in the New York Times that was taking a look at low income low income but high achieving students mm-hmm. that weren't applying to to schools Ivy League or uh, state schools, uh, what have you that they uh, were qualified to get into because they didn't know that it was an option when they drilled mm-hmm. down, they just didn't even know that they could have, right. uh, could have done this. And I think that speaks to exactly what, what, you're, what you're talking about. So I think if, you know, My Brother's Keeper, um, if it, to the extent that it can be a force multiplier in this conversation, mm-hmm. it's, it's about talking about those models, those right. opportunities, what resources may exist, uh, and, and kind of shining a, light, shining a light on that. Right, yeah,
1: I think My Brother's Keeper can have a, a huge impact if it has the ability to help bring together, and not you know on a uh, a total basis, but on a periodic basis, to bring together a lot of male-focused organizations that have a lot of strong men leading those organizations that our young boys can see, hmm. right on a consistent basis. On a consistent basis, right? Because then now again, what you're introducing is a larger platform of models that these young boys, as you mentioned, can imitate, right? It's one thing for me to put a book in front of somebody and say, learn what's in here, Yeah, right. right? Yep. It's another thing for me to put a doctor in front of them and then they say, boy, I want to be a doctor. Then you tell them, okay, if you want to be a doctor, you've got to learn what's in this book, right? right? right. Now what you've done is created the dream and now they have the dream, they're willing to do what it takes to reach the dream. Yeah. If I just put the book in front of them, then there's no context to why do I need to understand what's in here.
0: Yeah, I was just I was just reading, uh, I'm reading a book by uh, this guy named Jordan Peterson, and there was a line that I just encountered that said something along the lines of, uh, he and it was a quote from someone else, that he who has a, a why can endure however, like whatever how. Exactly. Something along those lines. If you can give someone something to aim for, um, now all of a sudden, it's not just homework. Right. Not just some random assignment that's going to take up your time that you don't want to do, but it's related to your career goals. And that's, that's what we've done in uh, to
1: so many people, black and white, but mainly, you know, uh, at a much higher degree, the black community, we've taken the dreaming, the dreaming process away from our kids in a way that, you know, the why is gone. Mm-hmm. And so the only whys they do see are celebrities, sports figures, you know, those they see on TV. And the problem, you know, that's not a problem to say that I want to grow up to be a football star or basketball star or whatever. You know, if that's your dream and goal, great you know, there's a chance, an extremely slim yeah. chance. I mean, my uncle played in the NBA. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Only you know, one I know. <laughs> and there are people from these neighborhoods that make it, right? Yeah, absolutely. The problem is, is, if you just, again, look at statistics. Yeah, statistically. The chance of a high school senior playing sports, let's look at football. Yeah. The chance of a high school football player making it to the NFL is 0.03%. Right? That means out of all the high school football seniors in this country point zero three percent. That's not a tenth of a percent. That's three hundredths of a percent will have the opportunity to make it to the NFL. Three-hundredths of a percent. Three hundredths of a percent. Right. Right? So the reality is you can be the you know, you can be great at football. Yeah. And the chance of you making it to the NFL is, you know, it's almost a lottery. Mm. Right? So I'm not I'm not telling a young person don't aspire to be a football player. Mm. But don't let that be your only, you know, the only part of your plan. Because even if you make it to the football, you know, to the NFL, the average lifespan is only four years. So after that four years is gone, what do you do for the rest of your life, right? When football is done. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to be having these conversations in a, in, a, in a way, and again, I think these used to be the conversations that would take place in a family. And now when you deal with so many families in poverty, you know, and I've got family members of my own that have gone down this path, now it becomes, okay, yeah, let's invest in football because that could be the ticket out. But not only the ticket out for them, the ticket out for our whole family, hmm. right? But again, it's almost like playing the lottery on a daily basis. Right. Because the chance that your child will make it to that level, and yes, there is a chance, but the chance that they'll make it to that level is extremely small. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And That's across all sports.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of synergy um, in, in the work, Mm-hmm. Uh, and i can I, I personally am excited to have to one of the more enjoyable a- elements of this work has been to encounter work that 's already happening, sure. learning about it and and getting a better idea of the context in which um, the the happenings of my day mm-hmm. are taking place in and um, and if there's any sense of of agency uh, or optimism, I believe it'll be found in the present moment it mm-hmm. won 't be found in the past we don 't have access to it, and by definition we can 't have access to it in the future. Uh, so if I'm going to be doing the work, I'd like to proceed with both of those things, right? Uh, a sense of agency and and of optimism, uh, and see what we can see what we can do. Because you and I both know there are those models and those options out right. there, and it's not a capacity issue for our young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm of the belief they can achieve whatever it is they set their heart uh, and mind to. With their, you know, but human beings aren't objects. Right. So you can have a goal and achieve it, or have a goal and fail, and yet not. Uh, or uh, fail to achieve it and yet not fail mm-hmm. because you'll grow and change and learn over sure. time. And especially if you haven't been exposed to a lot, um, mm-hmm. you know, striving for something ambitious, you'll get a lot of value out of that one way yeah. or another. Uh, and you might be able to channel that energy into something that where you have a better chance of success for in, right. in the example. Uh, or maybe is that passion for football is, uh, is related to other things that you have yet to discover and put names on. Uh, sure. And so that, that pursuit will help identify that for you, yeah. you know, so.
1: And, and, you know, just thinking about sports, we... We should be looking at um, some of the statistics that happen in sports and trying to make that a real for everyday life, right? Somebody in baseball, a hitter in baseball that gets a hit three times out of ten yeah. is considered a great hitter. Yeah, yeah. Right? That means they failed seven times. They failed almost twice as much as they have succeeded. Yeah. But then in our community, Someone fails once or a business, you know, doesn't do well one time and we want to write them off. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, if you understand success, you know, success happens when you have opportunities to fail over and over again. You learn from that and then you set yourself up that one of those opportunities comes. You take all the learning you've had and now you turn it into success.
0: Hey there, Josiah here again. Hope you enjoyed the conversation uh, with Mark Lewis. I certainly did. Uh, So much to unpack there and uh, so much to be inspired by. Uh, If you wanna find out more information about the Poise Foundation, they can be found online at poisefoundation.org and on social media. Uh, And feel free to reach out to them directly uh, to learn more about how you can support the work they do uh, or uh, how they can answer uh, questions for you on how you can get personally engaged. Uh, in the sector or impact area of your choice. Uh, but thanks to to Mark for sitting down, and hope that we can continue to have uh, this conversation. Because uh, if if folks like he and I that are in different generations but interested in the same kind of work uh, can can learn from each other, uh, there's really nothing that we can't we can't accomplish. So uh, that's it for now. Signing off here. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.